it's narcissistic to ask for this type of prayer, but um, I tend to not stop. I just keep going, and um, that's why I'm now in this cast rather than the brace because um, I have begun to um, disassemble the surgical plate and the things inside my wrist from not behaving myself. Um, you know, the surgeon says, uh, he looks at the x-ray and then says, what have you been doing? And I straight face lie and say nothing <laughs> other than shoveling and raking and working. And he said, well, you're leaving here in a cast. So the brace is no longer available. So now I'm in a cast. And I still haven't stopped because this actually lends a lot more support. <laughs> I, I, I don't say that as a braggadocious thing. It's just dumb. You know what I'm saying? I'm dense like that. I'm halfway through thing, lifting something up. And I'm thinking, that really hurts. You know, like, duh. So um, pray for your stupid pastor that... Uh, he would take it out of gear and delegate and ask for help and do all those humble things he's supposed to do rather than being prideful and bullheaded and determined. However, I, I like to classify it in ways that are complimentary, and it's just prideful and dumb is what it really is. So um, anyway, I certainly don't want to live with the very negative repercussions. Um, uh, so... Um, wisdom um, and all all the stuff I need. So um, Acts chapter five. If you can pray for that um, in the tonight and in the coming days, I'll try to teach Acts chapter five. How about that? Verse twelve. We've seen Ananias and Sapphira, and it says, "And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people." And they are all with one accord in Solomon's porch there at the temple, gathering as a body of believers. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to make a, a big deal again about corporate worship. Um, it is commanded in the scripture. Um, I've had in recent years some strong discussions with people that are anti-corporate worship. They're, they're saying, no, you know, home churches, that's what God intended. And look, uh, home churches are amazing and wonderful and powerful, okay? And the church in the first century reverted to home churches because they were being so persecuted. They couldn't meet together. And so in the history of the church, the home churches are, I mean, invaluable, they had to go on, and they carried the church, and so much of church history is engaged in that. But we see here in the book of the Act, uh, the book of Acts, how the body of Christ was as many as could were gathered together, thousands gathered together to be taught by the apostles, to learn, to grow. And here's an occasion, right? They're all together on Solomon's porch to hear the word of God being taught and instructed to them. My point is, both things are very useful. Big, big, big mega churches, smaller churches, home churches. You know, we are the church, right? So where the church is gathered in whatever numbers, that's useful. 
needed. Hebrews 10.25, do not command, imperative command, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints, as some have thought, especially as you see the day approaching, that when things are getting worse, that's where we should all the more be, and as I've said, interlocking for useful function, right? Not just on FaceTime, not just on Zoom, getting together, right? There are gifts you have that I need to be sharpened. There are things I have, others have, that can be imparted to you. We must function, physically function together as a body. And so here, they're gathered together, Solomon's porch, one accord. There it is, interlocked, functional uh, together. Yet none of the rest dared join them. Those that were observant, right? Look, when Ananias and Sapphira drop dead from lying to the Holy Spirit, people have to you know, take very seriously whether they're going to be involved. There's a true historic account of an underground church fellowship in Vietnam that was meeting in a basement during the Vietnam War in the communist district, and right in the middle of it, two communist soldiers burst into the room. And everybody freezes in panic, and guns loaded, these two soldiers say, everybody who's a fake needs to leave right now. Anybody who's willing to die for their faith should remain in the room. And a bunch of people leave, and a few remain. And they lock the door and unload their guns and sit down and say, we're here for church. We just didn't want to be here with any fakes. Okay, uh, you know, the, the, the real believers uh, are gathered together here. Those that are seeing the power of the Holy Spirit even strike people dead are like not, not really interested. And they're elsewhere. So that's what we see going on here. But the people esteemed them highly. Yeah, none of the rest dared to join, but the people esteemed them highly, meaning <clears throat> there's a public reverence. They, they get it. These guys are the real deal. These guys are powerful, and they're completely intimidated by this gathering and uh, what's going on. Verse 14, believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes, again, thousands, right? It specifically says tens and twenties. And hundreds, multitudes is that term of thousands. Was it exactly a thousand, more than a thousand, slightly less than a thousand? Uh, you know, it sort of implies that. It's, you know, you might say thousands-ish. You know, they're, they're, this isn't just one or new, two new converts weekly. They're seeing big throngs added to it. So while there's intimidation and while there's people who are reserved and staying away, there's also a massive thronging that is going on uh, within these settings. People often ask me, right now, what do you see is going on in the church? You know, are we looking at or for revival? Are we looking at or for rapture? Uh, is this the apostasy, people falling away from the church? And I say, yes. Okay, I believe all of that is going on. I think the, the intensity of what the government has done in this nation to intimidate the church 
And <clears throat> by the way, um, don't know if you're aware, um, Liberty Council won their case against the state of Illinois and all of those medical workers that were expelled from their jobs are getting massive settlements, right? Because it was a violation of the Constitution to not allow them to have religious exemption or medical exemption, which is exactly what our governor is doing. Guess what's coming for our governor, right? It, it, the correction will be had. Uh, it doesn't stop, right? The, the, the U.S. Supreme Court says that the mandates being put out of the White House are illegal, and they reverse them and say you can't do that anymore. The following week, Joe Biden puts out new mandates. They defy the law, right? Why? Because we have institutions within our government that create laws. That's why they have the positions that they do. The president doesn't just get to arbitrarily do that, declare law from the desk, right? That's got to go through the proper channels. You know, Congress, Senate, they've got to hear these things out. So there's a struggle going on. There's a rebellion going on. But we are still a nation rule of law. Still, as weird as it is, seeing as much as at times you watch the news and you think it's not, we still are a nation rule of law. Okay, And uh, you know, as long as we're able to maintain what we currently have, we should be able to see these things work out. Midterm elections coming up, next presidential cycle, we'll see. Other people talking Donald Trump. I'm hoping for better. You know, Donald Trump was great. How about somebody better? You know, that actually turns the nation's heart towards Jesus. You know, wholehearted revival. You know, these are the things. So, you know, what we see uh, going on here, sort of a mixture of things. We small scale see that great falling away. There's an apostasy within the church. People are leaving. I'm also seeing people catch on fire for the Lord and be more real than they've ever been. <clears throat> and as I see what's going on around the world, I think the Lord's return is imminent. I think it's very, very soon at hand. So again, the answer is yes. I see all of that uh, happening. And I think you probably see the same things in the process. So here, multitudes of both men and women being added. Verse 15, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now, listen, this is literally to say that um, <clears throat> Peter's shadow falling on them would make them well, that they would be raised up. You read some of the commentaries and they say, well, we have no evidence that that actually happened. Okay, well, okay. We don't have it recorded here that it specifically says when Peter's shadow fell on them, they were made well. Right, it doesn't say that. By implication, it's saying that. Okay, and we also have the fact that we get a little deeper into the book of Acts, and <clears throat> Saul of Tarsus has become the Apostle Paul, and this guy's handkerchiefs and his you know, construction apron, his work apron, uh, people were stealing them and taking them home. So, he, so let's go through that whole discussion. <clears throat> In Greece, to this day, they often take what south of the border calls a siesta, you know, middle of the afternoon. It's so humid and so hot that very often, 
you don't find it everywhere, but especially in laborers. They go to work very, very early in the morning when it's still cool. They work until mid-morning, and then they break. And they literally, often some of them go home, go to bed, lay in the cool of the shade, get near some body of water, cool off, and sleep. And then come back late in the afternoon and work until into the evening. So there's a big break to avoid that heat in the middle of the afternoon. And especially in Paul's day, no air conditioning, coolant like that, that afternoon break was very necessary in order to get large blocks of time. Or otherwise, you just wipe out your workforce, you know, by two in the afternoon, they can't wiggle, you know what I'm saying? So the big break, Paul said, perfect. People are laying around in the parks and in, you know, the cool, and I'll go preach to them. And so we actually have recorded occasions where he was, he's going from tent making and takes his sweatband off and he takes off his apron and he lays it down and he goes to preaching and he gets all caught up, right? Because Paul can preach until midnight if you let him. And, uh, and he goes back to his handkerchief and his apron and they're gone. And then they later discover some, apparently the way it's described, bring them back. I took this home yesterday. My aunt was sick. I laid it on her as we prayed. She was completely healed. Okay, and the, the scripture specifically records that his handkerchief and his apron were laid upon the sick and they were made well. Okay, So by implication, this is saying when Peter's shadow fell on people, they were made well. Like in this, these peculiar forms of healings. Now, uh, today, the church says, okay, well, let's be fantastic, and we want to do things like that. We'll have a handkerchief service. And now they're, you know, they're waving their sports coats over people and doing all kinds of weird stuff. Here's the thing. You're not going to be healed unless your focus is on Jesus Christ. If your focus is on the handkerchief, if your focus is on the apron, if your focus is on the sports coat, if your focus is even on Paul... Right? It's Jesus Christ that's going to perform the healing. These sorts of things happened under Jesus' ministry. Right? If I could just touch the hem of his robe, and they're made well. It isn't, it isn't our faith. People misappropriate that. It's what you place your faith in. That's how the healing, that's how the deliverance works. Right? If, if you're saying, God, I've had this habit, for most of my life, and I want it gone. I've prayed incessantly. I need you to work in my heart and my mind. Uh, from now on, I'm going to always do these things, and that is going to be my healing. Well, now it's your ability. I'm going to believe stronger than anybody else, and, and it's going to happen. And it doesn't happen. That's very discouraging. And then there are even ministers that say it's your fault. Because you didn't believe correctly. You didn't believe strongly enough. You're, you're the failure. Okay, well, here's the thing. I, I, you know where I'm headed. Those of you that have been in this class for years, uh, right? You, you got Peter in prison. You got a Bible study down the street. They're praying that Peter will get let out of prison. Why? Because they just killed James. And they don't want Peter to die like James did. So they're all earnestly praying. And an angel goes into the prison like we're going to see here and releases Peter and takes him outside and sets him free, and he goes down the road to where that Bible study is happening, and he pounds on the gate, and little Rhoda comes out, and she sees him and freaks out and doesn't open the gate and runs back inside to the Bible study in the prayer meeting and says, Peter's outside, and they say, you're crazy because he's in prison. They're praying for Peter's release, and little Rhoda says he's outside. 
And they say, can't be. She insists all the more frantically, like some young girls do. And they say, well, she's spastic. Because she must have seen Peter's ghost. They've already beheaded Peter. How much faith is involved in that? How much faith is involved in that prayer meeting? Where they don't believe Peter's at the gate. And then if he's at the gate, he's dead. Right? They aren't trusting. They're praying to the one who is faithful. Right? They're praying to the one who is faithful. He is the object of the faith. He is the object of the strength. He is the object of the release, the healing, whatever it may be. Christ alone. As long as you're saying, it's me. I'm the one with superpower faith. I'm going to pray. God says, yeah, go ahead. It's all you, man. Make it happen. Go, I dare you. Right? He puts these challenges out throughout the Bible. I always quote Isaiah 41, 21, where he challenges the nation of Israel to go ask your false gods to show you the future. See if they can tell you anything, good or bad, that we could all fear together at who they are. Anyone who trusts in them is foolish. You're altogether nothing, is what he says. Uh, you have a need in your life, and, and if you're saying, well, I, it's not going to happen because I don't believe strongly enough, the problem isn't your lack of faith. The problem is you think you have something to do with the strength, the power. It probably won't happen as long as we're thinking like that. Pray that the Lord will take care of it, right? What did that father say? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's where we're all at. Christ can accomplish these things. We need to trust him for the answer. Even when we've been praying for a full day, a full week, a full year, a full decade, continue in prayer. Let the Lord perform his work and his will. Strange things such as this happen. Bring out the sick into the streets, laid them on the beds and the couches that at least a shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And notice this, and they were all healed. They were all healed. The power of the Holy Spirit working through them. <clears throat> we, we read of occasions during Jesus' ministry where the entire region came to him and brought their sick and their demon-possessed, and they were all healed. Imagine how long that line was. Imagine how long that night was for Jesus just to be there one after the What is your malady? Let me pray for you. And the Lord, deliverance and deliverance and deliverance and deliverance. It's an amazing thing to see the capability of Jesus even through such meager men as Peter. Verse 17, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. And I'm going to do that lame thing, right? They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in the resurrection. And that is why they were sad, you see. Okay, so, right, you know, it's just a way to remember the whole thing. So they're, they're not, they don't have supernatural thought in this. Religion is just a big more moral agreement. 
you know, to, to conduct themselves according to. They uh, were filled with indignation, and um, we, we get these things. It's interesting to think about this, right? We're way early on in the book of Acts right now. So if you haven't ever put the connection together before, probably Saul of Tarsus is some of these, okay? He's amongst them. He's having conversations with them. He's learning things from them. We get explicit details about conversations and the backstory behind closed doors. How'd they get those, right? Probably Saul of Tarsus when he became Paul the Apostle, was let me tell you, oh, that's your side of that? Let me explain our side of that, <laughs> you know, to get the whole story. It's an interesting thing that we see here. So the high priest, and again, right, we're going to hear it in the discussion. This is the high priest who was there condemning Jesus. Okay, Only about three months has passed at this point. So we've got strong attachments to these occurrences that are happening right now. So they're the sect of the Sadducees. they they were filled with indignations. They laid hands on the apostles. And that's the idea of with violence, laid hands. This isn't just, hey, fellas, you got to come with us. we got to have a meeting. This is seizing hold physically, wrenching people around. And notice the apostles, right? Previously, uh, we got Peter and John seemingly right now. We have all 11, including uh, Matthias, perhaps, in this group. But it gives that uh, emphatic title to the apostles. So they're, they're grabbing the whole leadership at this point. And where it says, and they put them in the common prison, uh, that's, not an that's a very unfriendly thing. There's no protective custody here, right? Uh, the big, the bad, the burly, the drunk, they're all here in this gathering. So to shove these, you know, as much as they hate them, these very respectable men, right? They're very religious. They've been involved in great work and ministry with Jesus Christ. Most of them were businessmen previously. These aren't criminals and thugs. They're putting them in with the gangsters right now. They shove them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. What did that look like? Okay, we got an imagination flowing here, but the common prison, the gates open up. There's a whole bunch of guys that want to go out that gate also, but only the apostles go. I can't extrapolate too far, but the common pr prison is a big room. It's a big cell. And if the gates are suddenly open, there's going to be a bum rush for the door. And no, there's an angelic filter there that says, no, we're just looking for 11, 12 guys specifically, and those are the only ones going out this door. I'd like to see how those things transpired behind the scene. Uh, at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, here's the, the thing, right? Uh, just jump forward, and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning so so there's actually a gap right did did they go home and get a shower right they were released from prison in the middle of the night you know if if that was me and I, the temple's not even going to be open okay and i like 
you're going to go home and your wife's going to be like, where have you been? Well, I actually have been in prison, you know, <laughs> like, what did you do? You know, you're going to hear all kinds of stuff going, nothing. I was just, you know, preaching the gospel. And, you know, Peter has a wife and others uh, seemingly have wives. And so, you know, there's some perhaps, you know, run home, get a sandwich sort of things, get cleaned up. Why? I got to be at the temple first thing. Why? The angels told us that we have to go to the temple first. So then early the next morning, right, you see these guys at the gate tapping their foot, waiting for entrance. And in they go. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning. So they're doing what they said. And taught, right? Taught. I, I, you know, you're sick of me uh, pointing this out. Jesus' ministry, teaching ministry. The apostles' ministry, teaching ministry, always teaching. Right? Miracles occur. People get healed. Supernatural events take place. Uh, again, take the book of Acts, spread it over the roughly 40 years that it takes place. You're looking at less than a miracle a year. Uh, th this isn't sort of an ordinary supernatural thing that's taking place here. We cer sit in certain, right? We're Pentecostal church. We're charismatic church. We believe in the gifts. We teach the gifts. We encourage the gifts of the spirit. Uh, you get in certain Pentecostal charismatic circles and they literally straight up teach. No, it's going to be a fireworks display of supernatural events every single day, every single week. That's not how the apostles functioned. It's not how Jesus functioned. Always teaching. Jesus specifically says, I was sent here to teach by the Heavenly Father. My job is teaching. And now that I've finished teaching here, I have to go over to that town and teach. And I must go to the next town and teach. And I'm going to go to that town and teach. And, and it says, and he arrived and went to the synagogue and taught. Right? His ministry is a teaching Ministry, promise of faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. It's so often implied that no, how people are going to be converted is if they can just see wild, fantastic things happening. Really? Okay, look, shove the modern church out of the scene and just pull ancient Israel up here for a minute. Released out of Egypt under supernatural circumstances. Red Sea heart congeals, seeming the, the way that it is described. Have you been around like jello? Okay. You got to touch jello to understand jello. And you know that there were little kids from Israel dragging their fingers through that water. The description comes, the water has congealed, right? It has stood up and become semi-solid. They're solid enough to not collapse upon them. They're crossing over on dry ground. You would fully expect mud and slippery slime, dry ground. They cross. That's miraculous. And then what? And now they're complaining. Immediately, God brought us out here to kill us. Think about that. Think about that. Have you ever had someone look you in the face and say, are you trying to kill me? You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's an, quite an accusation. And they throw that in God's face. And they do it repeatedly. They don't, they don't develop strong faith through super, supernatural experiences. You know, some of us have been 
in those circles. And we've experienced some inexplicable stuff, but it didn't make us any stronger for the following of Christ. That comes down to obedience, which is a subduing of our will. That's how that takes place. How do you do that? You do it. Power of the Holy Spirit, you get up in the morning and you crucify your flesh. And that's how you go through your day. That's what Jesus said, right? You know, anyone that wants to follow me is going to have to daily take up their cross and follow me. We're going to have to die to ourselves. Seeing the supernatural doesn't automatically make you strong spiritually. It may contribute, but I'll go back again. I've quoted it a few times. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Teaching the word this is what's so critical. The light bulb's going to go on at some point in our heads, and we're going to realize, oh, it's actually up to me. I've got to toe the line here. I've got to do what I'm supposed to do. I can't blame, you know, my dad, my mom, my brothers, my, you know, friends. It's, it's me. I'm the one who has to do what the Lord has called me to do. So here in this uh, middle of this, as they're Experiences taught the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. So they, they've missed the memo completely, right? They, they aren't in that communication loop. And so, you know, Facebook hasn't put any posts up. Nobody's texts any messages. And they send to the prison to get the boys out. When the officers came and did not find them in the prison... They returned and reported. Now, listen, was that dragnet years ago? There did nothing but the facts, ma'am. You know, uh, this is how this next section is written out in the Greek. It is this systematic of they arrive and report. It's like, well, you know, almost like they flip their notebook open. And like at 9.15 we left. And when we got to the prison, this is how this is going, right? They're giving this official response. There's no teenage drama in their recount they they are so rattled by this that they've got this sort of mechanical business like delivery of the message like we did our job we showed up at this time this is the group and we went in where we're supposed to and down at cell block a they brought the keys and we unlocked the door and nobody was there they go through this approach in a very mechanical way so uh, they uh, did not find them in the prison. They returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors, right where they're supposed to be. You know where the guard station is? We went, there, and they were right there, right where the guards were supposed to be, uh, outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. They just empty, seemingly the 11 that they had imprisoned. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. They're in the midst of being staggered by that. It's the look around the room and try to, like, like what is going on? You know, almost like nothing's even been said. It's, it's like maybe Paul gives us a view into their mind. Right now, everybody's in the midst of going, what in the world just happened? So, so one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the implication is they're doing the very thing you forbid them to do. 
the wording is such that it contains the explanation that remember how you told those guys not to preach in the name of jesus particularly at the temple they're at the temple doing that very thing right now so this you can imagine fuels the anger then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence okay again not because there was a supernatural event that took place at the prison and they're completely intimidated by the power of the Holy Spirit. So they come with reverential fear and say, hey, fellas, uh, you know, we don't want to tangle with you and God. So could you please come? None, none of that. Right. This their, their seeming uh, good behavior is here just because they fear the crowd. Right. So so even though supernatural events have taken place, hasn't touched their hearts. Right. They, they're going to they if if nobody was there, they probably would have pummeled these guys uh, if there wasn't a crowd uh, to contend with in this situation. It, it specifically says they brought them without violence for they feared the people lest they should be stoned by the crowd. Right. Uh, the, the supernatural event when they had brought them, they set them before the council. This all sounds very familiar. The high priest asked them, saying, uh, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Again, I want to remind us that they're looking at the book of Deuteronomy that specifically says, if anyone comes and preaches in any other name than Yahweh, or even if they perform miracles, right? A supernatural event occurs, but if they give credit to another God, then they're to be stoned to death. So no leading the nation of Israel astray after other false gods is what essentially Deuteronomy is saying. So that's the position they've taken is what, what name have you healed this man in Peter and John when they dealt with them previously? And so now they're telling you cannot preach in the name of Jesus, which is weird, right? We all know that Jesus' name in uh, their language is Yahweh's salvation. Right. So they're I mean, they're preaching in God's name uh, here in this moment. So they've given this command and told them. And now they're asking a rhetorical question. Did we not strictly command you uh, not to teach in this name? And look, this is really great. You guys, uh, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Two parts. Um, the way it states you have Fill Jerusalem with your doctrine is the idea of there is a continuous flow that is coming from you, which is constantly, continuously overflowing Jerusalem. It, it isn't just the sense as we read, you've filled it. And that would be complimentary enough, right? If somebody said of you, you filled Ellsworth with the teachings of Christianity, Wow, that's pretty cool, you know. Like I'm, I'm being accredited as filling, but it, it's more than that. It's the idea of you just won't stop. There's this constant flow that just keeps filling. We've tried to drain it off, and you just keep filling it up. Now, that's a better compliment, right? That, that, that there's right? Jesus saying that you know, I'll fill you with living water that'll become torrents, which flow out of you you know, into others or into your community or however you want to describe it. They're, they are being confirmed 
as doing what Jesus said they would do. They're filling their community with the gospel. That second point, and intending to bring this man's blood on us. Well, now wait a minute. Jesus' blood is on you. You are the group that killed Jesus. Why? I mean, you're acting all shocked, like you can't believe, how dare that you did this. Okay, and how about this? It isn't just a matter of they did it and weren't thinking about that because Pilate's trying to release Jesus and they shout back, and particularly the high priest, shout back and get the people to shout back. Matthew 27, verse 25, let his blood be upon us and our children. That's heavy. They've made the statement and now they are trying to shirk the responsibility of the very thing that they did. So here in this, continuing at verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, now this really waters it down for me. Uh, forgive me for taking particular offense at these little things, but we ought to obey God rather than men. It, 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 the English language is we must. We must obey God rather than men. Remember that when the government turns the gears on us again and they forbid us to gather together and to worship Jesus Christ. We must obey God rather than men. We have no choice because to obey men would be disobeying God. I, I will not take part of that. I will not be engaged in disobedience in that way. So Peter and the other apostles answered and said, so it's not just Peter as the mouthpiece. This is the general consensus. We must obey God rather than men. God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So if we were, oh, you're wondering if we're trying to bring this guilt and this blood upon you. Let me just be plain. You murdered him. I wonder if he pointed his finger right at Caiaphas at that point. You, you as the high priest, murdered this man by hanging him on a tree, whom God has exalted to his right hand by uh, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Okay, the, the resurrection is tied up in that. He doesn't even put a hard edge on that resurrection, he speaks more generically of Jesus' ascension back to the Father and being seated at the right hand. They know Jesus is resurrected. This is the group that paid the soldiers to lie, right? So, so some of what's being skipped over here is because Peter and these 11 know how unnecessary it is to grind on that one fact, you know of his resurrection. You know, the soldiers came from the tomb, reported to you in a panic over the fact that they had seen the angels and the stone rolled away and the tomb was empty. You are aware. You paid the sum of money and told those soldiers to lie and gave them the assurance that if they got in trouble with their commanders, that they could come to you and you'd vouch for their circumstances. This is the group. Peter's just yanking the carpet right out from underneath them. Verse 32, and we are witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This group of religious leaders is also aware of Acts chapter 2. 
that the Holy Spirit fell, that people spoke in tongues, that there was a mass conversion, and that the souls then began to preach the gospel all around, and then great power was demonstrated by these men immediately following as they went into the temple and healed the man who had been a paralytic for 40 years. They've seen one, two, three, these things clicking into place one after another. So when Peter is putting these charge on them, it's, it's the sort of thing that it's just sticking in their heart every single point that he's driving home here. So the Holy Spirit has given to those who obey him. Verse 33 uh, some of you are aware, I want to try to clear this up a little bit. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named, and the Jews pronounce it a little differently, but in my English rendition, Gamaliel here. Uh, I don't even remember how the Jews go through the process. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So just, like, shut the door. They'll, they'll hear us sort of talking, but let's put some separation here and have a private conversation is what he's doing. Gamaliel is a very, very interesting um, individual in Jewish history. Um, there are some things uh, that we know with certainty. There, are, there is stuff that extends from those certain facts that we're not entirely sure if it's sort of uh, coloring the picture in and adding to the story. But uh, Gamaliel was uh, one of the greatest teachers in all of Jewish history, especially at this time. Um, various uh, explanations of his wealth are described. Some say he was the wealthiest man in Jerusalem. Others say that he was literally the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. But, I mean, that puts you in the upper echelon at this point. Um, close friends with Nicodemus working together in Jewish ministry. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes, right, and says, we know, we who's we, right? What do they say? You got a mouse in your pocket, right? The the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, here, we collectively know that you are sent from God. No one can do the miracles that you do unless they had been sent by God. So the confession comes from Nicodemus. Hey, Gamaliel, you know, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, religious leaders of renown, we all know you're sent from God. Okay, so Gamaliel, from this point forward, um, actually earns a reputation. Josephus, uh, probably related in family bloodline, uh, Jewish historian, uh, upper echelons of uh, belief system, in that um, the, uh, he records, Josephus records, that Gamaliel was um, uh, trained in such a way that he had a, a very strict sense of purity before God, but he also uh, seemingly had a deep relationship with God that led him to be very gracious. Okay, so um, for instance, while he dramatically opposed um, uh, divorce, uh, where in the culture it was becoming much more allowed and prevalent, he he dramatically opposed it um, and really took a hard line on it should only be 
for sexual impropriety that the divorce would ever be allowed. But within that, when it did take place, he often lent counsel that the women who were suffering and the children who were suffering through that process should be given great provision. Where the other forms of Jewish religion were extremely hard and left them often very destitute. Uh, so, so, so he had this soft-hearted approach in the grace of God that when things fell apart, that there's a responsibility to care for those who are being injured in the circumstance. And, that, and then later it actually extended into Christianity where, where he had a, a gracious, heartfelt approach um, certainly uh, considered it a um, sort of an offshoot cult, but didn't want the religious persecution that ended up taking place. So when you hear this statement that comes here, um, you're hearing a strong sense of who this man was. Okay, it, it might sound like he's just saying, hey, we know these facts to be true, but really there's, there's a tender heart behind this that's saying we want to be careful about how we treat our fellow human beings. So Gamaliel, his person, and uh, that brief description, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And it was that, that pure heart of religion and simultaneously the tenderness that caused him to have this favor. He commanded them to be put uh, the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them that the, the Jewish council, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. And I, and I skipped the point that the apostle Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, was a confirmed student of uh, Gamaliel and uh, learned uh, in, in his school. Paul gives confession to that. Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, and this is a contemporary situation that occurred, claiming to be somebody, by implication, the Messiah. You know, he had a group of followers. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up, not any connection to Judas of the Apostles, in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For it, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now listen, it sounds... Um, sound right you listen to that statement and you think that that's good counsel that's good stuff it's completely untrue okay <laughs> there there have been profoundly good men working for the lord who their ministries were cut short okay and and if you're thinking like they must have done something wrong they must have been i'll just say keith green Right? I mean, Jesus movement, powerful musician, ministering to all of us, and suddenly gone. Okay, uh, you know, that, that was a tragedy. You know, certain men of God do get struck down. Okay, so, so just because it's of God doesn't mean it's bulletproof and won't ever be attacked 
and can't be destroyed. Secondly, flip the thing over, right? Uh, we've seen incredibly ungodly people rise up, create organizations, die, and it continues on. Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Millions worldwide continuing on to this day. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith, uh, founder of uh, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, of which it is neither Church of Jesus Christ nor Latter-day Saints, but that's their name anyway, right? Uh, you know, he dies, interestingly enough, in a gun battle with the FBI. So just, you know, in case you're ever wondering about that guy, um, and, you know, and then Brigham Young, right, continues on. Brigham Young was psychopathic. That guy, seriously, the things that he did to women uh, within the organization, the way that they treated people, you know, uh, look up to the Meadow Massacre, where he sends out henchmen and they kill everybody in a wagon train that wasn't even they had the mindset they're going to settle here in utah and we're going to have all of these heathens amongst us and we need to get rid of them and they did all kinds of things to try to drive them out of the territory they're not leaving when brigham wants them to so they go out there and murder them all men women children infants everybody just slaughter the whole group and the mormons are still around they look squeaky clean on their 10 speeds with their black and white uniform rolling around and their little badge. But point being, what Gamaliel is saying is not true. There are wicked people who succeed. And there are very godly people who do not. Okay? John the Baptist's ministry was cut short. You know what I'm saying? Uh, greatest prophet that ever lived, according to Jesus Christ. Uh, so, uh, you know, this council takes place. We appreciate the softness of heart that Gamaliel had and all that, you know, comes out of these quarters is a great historical thing to understand. Do not adopt this statement as Christian doctrine, right? You're going you're gonna to be looking next door and, uh, okay, I'll give one more example. Uh, I had friends come to me and tell me about this massive church they went to that was so spectacular. The end of the thing was they went to a mega church and the pastor that was teaching a heretic. They should not have gone there. Now, the, the reason they went was they were on vacation and they're in the area and they see the church sign and there's thousand cars in the parking lot. And they think, well, look, there's all these people. This must be something good. They go. And they experience a spectacular Christian rock concert. And then neither one of them could tell me what they were taught from the pulpit. Right? They couldn't remember at all. I go and look up uh, the church. The, and, and, and honestly, I would probably label it as a cult. Uh, their teacher was, it's, and it's since defunct. It's gone. But it was massive. What did Jesus say? It's a slight uh, angle on Jesus saying, if you see the birds, the eagles, the uh, vultures is really what we're saying, gathered, don't go. Right? Well, it's just a dead body. Just because there's a big gathering over there <laughs> doesn't mean if the Lord leads you to a, a big gathering of Christians and you're being blessed and growing, wonderful. Amen. That's great. Right? But you, you want to measure that according to the word of God. This, so this thing that's taught by Gamaliel, it, it sounds nice, uh, but it's not. And then, and then notice, watch, watch how well this group follows the advice. 
right? You don't, you don't want to oppose these guys. You could end up finding yourself fighting God, was how he closes it out. Verse 40, they agreed with him. No, they didn't. <laughs> they were polite, is what it was. They agreed with him, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, that, that doesn't line up with, with what was just said. You know, we agree with you. Knuckles to the head. You know what I'm saying? It, do, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. They're, they're not agreeing with him. There's no graciousness. There is no godliness in their behavior. When they had beaten them. Now, this uh, beating, uh, it's potential that we're literally talking about the scourging of 39 lashes. So line up 12 guys and just whip their backs raw and then send them out the door. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from their presence of the council rejoicing. And it is as it sounds. They don't go out the door wailing and crying and whimpering. And after things have calmed down and they get with their friends and they think it through, then they have a worship service. No, no. These guys break out into rejoicing in the presence of those who have just beaten them. How, how, how do you defeat that? When, when you, know, you flog somebody with an inch of their life and they rise up the floor singing songs of praise. It's difficult to subdue an individual like that. This is the faithfulness of heart they have. They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. They've already done that. They've already told them they can't do that. They came in saying, we're not going to obey you. Well, what if we bludgeon you? Thanks. They sing songs of rejoicing. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ. That's a T-shirt in there somewhere. You know what I'm saying? That statement. Worthy to suffer shame for Christ. And daily in the temple and in every house, house churches begin, right? But while they're meeting in the houses, they don't stop going to the temple, right? These guys don't just shrink, beat them you know, incessantly. They don't go, you know what? We should start home churches <laughs> and hide. And They don't do that. They go to the temple and they continue to preach. And in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Just so we understand this, right? Teaching and preaching are actually two different things. Preaching brings conversion. Teaching is what you do for the convert. That's what I'm doing. I'm teaching, equipping the saints. You want to see me preach? You got to put me with a heathen. Right? When I'm in public, when I'm around People, when I talk to our waitress, when I share Christ with others, uh, it's an unfortunate thing. And I say people that are very gifted evangelists are very often given a pulpit. And they stand in front of a room full of converted Christians and they preach as though the room needs to get saved. Okay, The room needs to be taught. As Paul tells us later, 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. What my job is sitting here is to take you as believers and instruct you more accurately in such a way that you're much more highly effective out there preaching, sharing with the world to draw them in here so that we can then teach those that are here together. This is how the body of Christ works. I don't have anything against preachers that stand in a room full of Christians and try to convert them. I don't have anything against them at all. Okay, I, I think it's a misappropriation of assets. Okay, I really do. Skill. I, I, I hate to say it this way. I grew up in those churches. Every single service was a conversion message. Every single service. You know, special event, guest speaker, sit down. And, you know, by the end, you're so convicted. You're like, you're right. I need to get saved. You know what I'm saying? And you go forward. You know, and, 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 you know, they're literally sort of chastising. Like, like, didn't you get saved last summer? Why are you up here? I don't know. You're the one preaching. I just, you get convicted me. Here I am. You know what I'm saying? There, there isn't that equipping, that strengthening, that building of the saints that's so necessary uh, for the body of Christ to help us grow. Um, there's no way I'm going to get through chapter six. Is there? It's one page. It's 15 verses. Watch this. Chapter six, verse one. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. So again, right? You already got thousands. You multiply thousands? This church is growing. This is happening. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. If you're not familiar with it, when they were in captivity, uh, 586 BC, all of Israel taken away into captivity, they live in Babylon. The prominent language of that culture is Greek, so that almost everybody that comes back from captivity is speaking strictly Greek. There are the Hebrews who speak Hebrew, but the Hellenists at least speak Greek. Some of them speak both Hebrew and Greek. And and they've adopted the culture, the clothes that they, you know, the the strict Hebrew uh, women and men are are thinking like uh, these people are completely worldly. You know, they speak Greek and they wear Greek clothing and they just, you know, almost like they're not believers. And we have some of that that goes on in the church today. So uh, we got the uh, Hebrew and the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The Hebrew Christian women, their widows, are getting daily food cared for by the church. The Hellenists, whether it was happening or not, have raised a complaint that the Hebrews are get, Hebrew widows are getting food and we as Hellenists are not getting food. So this complaint comes up because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Whenever somebody comes into this church, and this is just me letting the cat out of the bag, and they tell me, I have been in ministry for a long time and I'm an excellent teacher. So if you ever need me to fill in for you, just let me know and I'll pastor this church. You know, is essentially how they deliver that message. To which I say, what we really need right now is somebody to go clean toilets. Right? I say, usually say something like that. If they're bold enough to step forward and offer themselves as pastor, 
I boldly step forward and offer a position of janitorial in some sense. And all I'm looking for is a willingness of heart. I really don't want them to go. If you're a skilled teacher, that would, again, be a wasted resource, right? But I want to see the willingness of heart to go serve in some sense. Could, could you hang out with these kids? Could you teach a Sunday school class? Can you do something? Like, show yourself in uh, this uh, setting. They say specifically it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They're not saying we will not serve tables. We are bigger than that. We are better than that. We are above that. They don't say that. They say it would be undesirable for us to leave the word of God. Now, I'll just say it this way. Um, what I do in preparing the word of God and teaching the word of God I want to concentrate on so that I can show up here and do this. If I have expended all my hours on cleaning the toilets and I show up here ill-prepared, I feel like I've done a great disservice to the Lord and to the body of Christ. So it's as simple as that. These men have been called to perform this work of teaching and they're just saying this this would be a misappropriation of asset to move us into this place where we were waiting tables. And it's literally that idea of being a waiter, being a servant that not only shows up and just drops a box on the doorstep, but comes back a few minutes later. And what, what is it they always say now? How are the few first few bites? That drives me crazy. But, you know, they're, they're literally there to attend, to wait like a waiter in a restaurant. That's, that's what's being implied, waiting on tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There it is again. Not miracles, not the fireworks display, prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, here's the deal. These, this is the establishment of deacons. Okay? And here is the first qualifications we see for deacons. That they must be of good reputation amongst everyone, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. Right? They've, they've got to be. Now, for no, those of you that know this account and we see... Stephen and all that takes place uh, in the following chapter, uh, you, you know, you sometimes think like, you know, deacon, and then Stephen opens his mouth and you're like, oh my gosh, deacon, wow. You know, this guy references the Old Testament more than 40 times in his brief sermon. He cuts everybody to the heart. In what he has to say. He stands the entire Jewish religious system right up on its ear in the moment, right? He remarkable man. Uh, so much of the church has just adopted this good old boy mentality about deacon. We'll just, we'll just, you know, you want to nominate somebody? Okay, put their name in the hat and we'll, put them, we'll vote. And there, that guy's a deacon. And then it turns out that uh, he's not of good reputation. And he's not faithful, and he's not full of the Holy Spirit, and he's not full of wisdom. These are the qualifications we're looking for here to already be presented before we even consider someone 
in the moment. Verse 5, saying, please, the whole multitude. And they chose, again, I'll just put it out on the front end. Every one of these names is Greek. The Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, have brought the complaint. And every one of these men that they choose has a Greek name. <laughs> That's wisdom, right? If the group of the Greeks have complained, let's find men that all have Greek names. So that in the future, we're perhaps not going to deal with this. The saying pleased them, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, the proselyte from Antioch, so a foreigner who's converted to Judaism, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed and laid hands on them. Uh, this isn't a transference of power, right? In the Old Testament, they would bring the sacrifice that was about to be slaughtered, and the man would have to come, who was asking for the sacrifice, lay his hands on the animal's head and confess his sins out loud symbolically transferring guilt to the animal. Jesus comes and in his purity, we're saying so with human beings, guilt to the sacrifice. Jesus comes in purity as the sacrifice, lays his hands on the confessors and claims them as his own, right? That idea of I identify with these, his purification in the process. So it's that coupling together, and that's what we see going on here. They claim these men as their own. The word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, seemingly connected with this event. The fact that this group was living communally, caring for all their needs, and then amongst them here are the widows who should be being cared for the best, and a group is neglected, and these people move to make sure that that situation is corrected. And all of the community that witnesses that is moved. They're seemingly even many of them converted by that. The great care for the body of Christ. Listen, having been raised by a widow I all my life, I have seen the church excel at this very thing, and I've also seen the church fail at this very thing. And I can tell you, as a young man, as an orphan, it staggered me in my walk with the Lord when the church failed. You know, it is an easy excuse to point the finger and say, you know, I'm screwing up and falling into sin because of those hypocrites over there. You know, that yeah, that's easy. But I can tell you it's a dramatic impact when you got a single mom and you're in need and those that are supposed to be caring for you slight you in the process. As that's very painful. It's very, very difficult. Uh, verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from whom, for, excuse me, from what is called the synagogue of freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak 
blasphemous words against Moses and God. And we've already heard that in the fake trial of Jesus, right? You know, Jesus uh, being accused, this man said he was going to destroy the temple. This man, you know, taught people to rebel against Moses. None of those things have gone on. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. None of those things are true. He hasn't spoken against the law, the temple, any of those things. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And I'm just going to leave you with that cliffhanger, Will back up a little bit uh, next time we're together and, and take a running start into this. But the thing I want us to, to leave with and hang on is how effective uh, Stephen is uh, here in this uh, moment. You know, he's a de- you know, we, we might even just say he's just a deacon and he's blowing them out of the water. And no one can contend with him and it enrages them. With that, I want to encourage you. If the Lord is speaking to your heart in the past weeks and days and encouraging you to take greater steps and step up and do more and be more involved, know that the attack is coming, right? I'll bear my soul. Our number of days together are short before the Lord has our next adventure and plan in mind. You know, you guys hopefully, you know, view my motorcycle accident as an attack. Uh, I do. You know, when I saw that truck pull on in front of me, literally, I had that sense in a split second of my enemy is trying to kill me to keep me from going to Kentucky. Flash through my mind in that. I will tell you this, and don't nag them about it, but my wife, my mother, uh, Steve and Colleen, uh, Abby, Evan, uh, Becca and Zach, they're all personally, spiritually experiencing their own motorcycle accidents right now. Right? They're heavy under attack. There's big stuff going on in everybody's world, everybody's life right now. And I covet your prayers. You know, if you, if you look at me and go, wow, that's severe. Know that spiritually, they got stuff going on. And, and they're being tried and they're being tested out. Stephen steps up to the plate and says, yeah, I'll be a deacon. I'll just care for the widows, and he's going to die in the next chapter, right? Strong attack. Uh, you know, there might have even been people in the congregation who whispered things about, well, clearly Stephen shouldn't have been called to be an apostle, you know, to be a disciple. No, no, that was his job. And that was what God planned for him as an example to us. Right. I've, I've had people come and say, now that you've had your motorcycle accident, uh, have you changed your mind? Yes, I'm more determined. If this is how bad my enemy does not want me to go there. Uh, then now nothing's going to stop me. You know, if you know, what did Paul say? <laughs> well, I know. 
Chains and imprisonment are what are ahead of me, and I'm going. Now, I, I know my enemy isn't going to back off. Uh, again, making it all about me. I'm really just trying to put that forward to you. You, you Maybe you've done it in the past. I, I want to serve, and you step up and get plowed right in the mouth, and you go, never mind. <laughs> but don't do that. Don't, don't do that. This is war. The Lord told us that. Paul told us that over and over again. If you get plowed in the mouth, just realize you didn't have your shield up high enough. Right? Maybe you didn't have your helmet on. <laughs> you know, there are some things to do in warfare. There are ways to proceed forward. So let the Lord minister to you and let these men be an example to us. Right? I'm going to obey God rather than men. I'm not concerned about what the outcome is. I know what he delivered me from. I know the captives that are currently held, and I want to go and deliver that gospel message to them, see them freed in the same way I was. So let the Lord minister to you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are very grateful for your word and the examples we see in these men and these women. Help us to follow those examples, to follow the leading of your Holy Spirit, to be filled with your spirit and your purposes. Lord, may it be said of us that we had overflowed whatever community we were involved in, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.